So a few weeks ago, we went down to my mom's house. And one of the things we do every time we go to my mom's, or at least in the summertime, is we go to the beach. And every time we go to the beach, we build sandcastles. And so Jan was talking about sandcastles, and I was thinking about that and how we build these. And every time we do that, and we come up with these elaborate designs. So this was just over two weeks ago, we were at, down at the beach at Warren Dunes State Park and building a sandcastle. How many of you think that sandcastle is still there? No, probably not, right? And because Jan explained, sand doesn't do very well. So we heard this story that Jesus told about a man who built on rock and a man who built on sand. So do we think he was talking about ancient building codes? Or was he just simply giving an, a reminder that when you build a sandcastle, don't plan on it being there very long? He was saying something about our life and what that has to do. And so we are beginning a new series today. A new series looking at Matthew's, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, uh, which is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And looking at these teachings and the readings that John read was from the very beginning and the very end of that. Kind of the bookends of what happened. And I want to use today to kind of move into that. Now, if you were here last week, we kind of did a prologue to this whole thing. And we talked about the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus came and in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or down in verse 23, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. We talked about the kingdom of God and how Jesus comes and brings the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is God's rule and reign over all things because we as people have chosen to do things all our own way, and one of the promises, the storyline of the Bible, of following this story, is that God will come again as the king to make all things right. And so when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God has arrived or the kingdom of God is here or at hand, he's saying that he is that one. He is the manifestation of God coming and bringing the kingdom of God, beginning to set all things right. And then what it says is that was what Jesus was teaching about. Jesus was teaching all about the kingdom of God, and he was healing sicknesses and diseases. And so the question might be, well, what was he teaching about? If he was teaching about the kingdom of God, what was he teaching? If you have a Bible, and you're on chapter 4, and you turn the page, or maybe it's the same page, start at chapter 5, and particularly if you have one of those Bibles that has the words of Jesus in red, how many red letters do you see on that next page? A whole, I mean, pretty much all of it, right? And you turn the page to chapter 6 whole lot more red letters, right? Chapter 7, a whole lot more red letters. And then when we move into 8 and 9, not so much. But if you read the stories of chapters 8 and 9, you see Jesus doing what? Healing people. And then it concludes in chapter 9 at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Which sounds a whole lot what he, like what he said back in chapter 4. So it's kind of this frame where Matthew says, here's what Jesus did. He taught about the kingdom of God, and then he healed people. And so, what did he teach about the kingdom of God? Well, Matthew basically shows us in chapters 5 through 7, this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. This was what Jesus was preaching. Now, Matthew didn't have chapters written down. They didn't have chapters in their description, so we call it chapters 5 through 7, because that's convenient. It's an easy way to do it. 
But so for the next few months, we're going to be looking. And I say next few months because I'm not entirely sure how long it's going to get through this series. Sometimes I start a series and I know exactly and I've got every Sunday planned out. I'm not entirely sure with this because some weeks might take a little longer, some passages. But for the next few months, we're going to be looking at Jesus teaching here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on the message of the kingdom. What does he talk about the kingdom? Now, kind of a warning that we could put on this is, this is going to be some tough stuff. Now, a lot of times the words of Jesus, a lot of scripture is tough, but the Sermon on the Mount is some of Jesus' toughest teachings in some way. Tough, not necessarily to understand what he's saying, but tough because they challenge us and they challenge and they run counter to the way that the world often teaches us to live. Today, as we start, I don't, my intent is not to outline those three chapters because it's really even hard to determine an outline. A lot of scholars trying to go back and forth. What is the outline? But what I want us to think about today is what's our attitude, what's our posture as we enter into this study? And so if you have your Bible or your phone or whatever you want, turn the page, tap the screen, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And here, Matthew sets the stage for what's happening. And he simply says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, and then we get all the teaching. So in the previous chapters in Matthew, Jesus has been baptized. He's gone into the wilderness. He's been tempted. He's gone out and he said, here's what I'm going to focus on, the kingdom of God. Then he started gathering a few followers. He called a few fishermen to follow him. But then he started getting these other crowds. And so now here are all these crowds that are gathered around him. There's lots and lots of people following him. And it says, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, as we read our Bibles, oftentimes there are details in there, little hints about the narrative, not a whole lot. If you read a novel, and I've been reading some novels lately and stuff, sometimes they'll spend eight pages just describing what the people were wearing and what they were eating and what. You read your Bible, you don't get any of that. You get very little details, very little about setting. And so sometimes it's important to pay attention to what those little details are. Now, sometimes they're significant, sometimes not as important. But sometimes we miss the significance of the details because we live in the 21st century and we live in America. And why does that make a difference? I'll just use an illustration from my own life is my wife and I grew up in a different generation than my kids did. And so sometimes we'll make references to TV shows or songs and we get this look like, what are you talking about, mom? What do you, what, what do you, what's that mean, dad? Because they're not familiar with that language we're using. Or as a family, we, there are certain movies and books that we enjoy. And we like to quote those movies. And we can use those as a reference. And it can trigger all kinds of memories and thoughts in our minds. But if we might use those with some of you, you'd look at us the same way. Like, what does that mean? Why, why did you just say that? Or we as Americans, we have common parlance and language. So if I talked about someone cutting down a cherry tree. There's a good chance all of a sudden you think about what? George Washington and all the stories that go along with George Washington. And so in the same way, when Matthew writes, Matthew didn't write 
in the 21st century to Americans, he wrote in the first century, most likely to Palestinian Jews. And they grew up with a different set of stories, a different language, a different way of viewing the world. And so sometimes what Matthew and the other biblical writers are able to do is they're able to use just a phrase, a brief description, and what it does is it captures all those ideas and minds in their head, all these pictures. And so when it says that Jesus went up on a mountain, they grew up with one set of stories. The primary stories that the people of God had heard was what we call the Old Testament. And there's one major figure, there's a couple of figures, but one primary figure that they knew and they'd hear about every year and learn about again and again and again. One figure who went up on a mountain. Any Bible nerds want to take a guess who went up on a mountain? Moses. Moses was this man who God had called to lead the people of God out of slavery. And when they're brought out of slavery, he brings them to a mountain and then he takes Moses up on a mountain. And what does he do on the mountain? He gives Moses the laws or the Torah. He gives them the Ten Commandments, but he also gives them this way of living, this covenant with his people, this agreement, this contract, this way of living with his people. So Moses goes up on a mountain and receives this and comes down. And so most scholars believe when Matthew says, when Jesus went up on a mountain, he's making the point, he, he inserts that little detail because he wants the listeners, the readers to start thinking about Moses and what Moses did. And in fact, Matthew draws a lot of parallels between Jesus and Moses. So this is a little bit of nerd time, so if you want to take a minute or two and go to sleep, that's fine, but we'll come back to it. So Moses and Jesus, what do they have in common? When they're born, there's a despot, a tyrant who's out to kill them. And what is that despot? It's Pharaoh or King Herod. Pharaoh for Moses, King Herod for Jesus. And neither of them want that, those, that baby to live. And what do they do? They slaughter the children. Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, tries to drown all the Hebrew baby boys and Moses is rescued. Herod, in the New Testament, the story of Jesus, sends soldiers to slaughter all the children born in Bethlehem. But in both cases, they're rescued. And they both flee to a foreign country, to a faraway place. Moses goes off into the desert. Jesus is taken by his family to Egypt. And then they both return back to their place. And so there's all these stories, but it gets even bigger because when scholars outline the, the Gospel of Matthew, because that's what you all spend your time doing, right? Is looking at the Gospel of Matthew and trying to outline it. They recognize that Matthew has structured his Gospel, his story of Jesus in a particular way. That there are five major sections in it. Sections where there's discourse or, discourse or teaching by Jesus and a narrative that goes along with it. One, two, three, four, five. You think, okay, five. Five fingers on my hand. But there's also something significant about the book number five because the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are known as the books of Moses. So this isn't just an accident, I don't think, when it says Jesus went up on a mountainside. Someone hearing this story that Matthew wrote would all of a sudden, somebody went up on a mountain. Oh, like Moses. Well, what did Moses do on the mountain? He went up 
and he got the law, and he gave to the people of God the instructions for what it looked like to live as the people of God. So when Matthew says, Jesus went up on a mountain, they're thinking, oh, he's the new Moses. He's the better Moses. He's the fulfillment of Moses. He's giving instructions to the people about what it looks like to live as the people of God. And this is not a surprise to the people of God because in their stories, they've been hearing all along that the Messiah would come. That's the Hebrew word, Messiah. The Greek word is Christos or Christ. And so we know Jesus Christ, the Messiah, or we could say the anointed one or the coming king. Remember what we said Jesus talked about, the kingdom of God. So here he is, the Messiah, the Christ, the coming king. He's come as the king. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah says about what will happen when the Messiah comes. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new um, deal, a new way of living with his people, with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Moses covenant, right? It's not going to be like that. He said, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to him, declares the Lord. And now he says, this is the covenant. This is the new deal I'm going to make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their, their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In other words, Jeremiah has said, when the Messiah, when the Christ, when God's king comes, what's he going to do? He's going to give them a new covenant, a new way of living, and he's going to forgive their sins. Well, what does Jesus do? He comes here, he gives them a new covenant, a new way of living, and then through his death on the cross, brings the forgiveness of sins. So, in just a sentence here, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, which is what the lawgiver, that was the typical pose for someone presiding and giving the law did. Matthew has taken all that stuff and crammed it into a couple words, which we just took a while. So, but someone reading Matthew says, oh, Moses, and all these ideas and thoughts come in their mind. And as they read through it, they begin to see Jesus is the new Moses. He's the, not even the new, the fulfillment of what Moses was to be. He's bringing the law, and law is not even the instruction. We use the word law, and law, law's kind of got a negative sound to us. He gives the instruction for the people of God, this is how you're to live. And so that's what a first century Palestinian Jew would have heard. And so now we, hopefully, as 21st century Americans, have started to hear that same thing. So as we enter into this, as we enter into this study, what we want to envision Jesus as, Jesus is coming and bringing a new covenant, a new way of living, and, and giving instruction for the people of God to say, this is what it looks like to live as the people of God. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So now I want to jump from first century back again to the 21st century. And some insights that I picked up from a pastor, John Mark Comer, and some things I had read, but I like the way he kind of um, um, synthesized and put these things together. And he talked about three different people. We'll just briefly cover these three modern writers. The first is a man named Buckminster Fuller. 
And Buckminster Fuller wrote a, wrote a book in 1981, but what he talked about, the important thing he talked about was the knowledge doubling curve. And what Fuller did, he had looked back at history and he said, up till about 1900, human knowledge, the extent of everything that people knew seemed to double about every 100 years. But as World War II came along, that time span reduced to about 25 years. So human knowledge was doubling about every 25 years. Now, Fuller wrote this book in 1981, long before the advent of supercomputers and the internet and all that. Anyone want to take a guess what the folks who study this think that the knowledge doubling curve looks like today? About some estimated as low as every 12 to 24 hours. In other words, you maybe went to bed last night, woke up this morning, and the amount of human knowledge doubled. And even if, even if it's one or two years, just think about that. As you think about when you take something, and we all done that, you, know, you take something, you take a penny and you add two pennies. When it doubles as it, it's exponential, right? And this massive increase of knowledge. That means there is a whole lot of stuff to know out there. So the second person that Comer talked about was Thomas Friedman, a columnist who wrote a um, column at a, it's later a book about the age of acceleration. And he talked about kind of this acceleration. He says, everything is changing faster. Well, if you're familiar at all with the idea of change, what happens when things change for most people? A little bit of anxiety, right? So what happens when things are changing faster and faster and faster? Anxiety goes up, doesn't it? So those are the first two, Fuller. Book. And then a third, one of my favorite authors, Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, and he talked about the information to action ratio. And he said, and Postman talks about how we hear things. And the question is, how much of the information that we hear do we actually do something with? And Postman actually identifies that there was a significant change when the telegraph was invented. So we're not talking computers or television, but the telegraph. Because that meant all of a sudden, we could get news from much farther away instantaneously. It used to be, prior to the telegraph, how did you get the news? Mostly by word of mouth or by a newspaper, right? And most of the news you got was about what was happening in your immediate area. And so those things you could often do something about. You found out that the family down the street just had a baby. Oh, okay, well, I can go and I can help them out. Or this guy's barn has a broken door and I can move over there and I can help them out. So there's all these things. But now all of a sudden, where do we get our news from? All around the world, right? And how quickly do we hear about it? Instantaneously, right? I mean, we're following along. Just a couple weeks ago, there was the, that exploratory submarine or the... the uh, and it was like, we were, many people were just kind of glued minute by minute, kind of following this story about five people. How many of you knew any of those five people on that sub? Probably not. I mean, how many of you ever heard of the, I mean, of this company? But there were these things that fascinated us. We learned about this. How many of you could do anything about that story? How many of the stories we read in the news can we actually do something about? I mean, we think about it, it's like, oh, a couple of weeks ago, we were all suffering from smoke and haze and stuff from Canada. I mean, we could do something. We could put a mask on or stay inside, right? 
but could we do anything about the cause of the smoke? How many of you jumped in a car and went up to fight forest fires in Canada? How many of you even thought about doing that? No, because, but that's what Postman gets at. There's this state of being where we're used to hearing information and we're moved by that information. And there's those things we hear about people starving. We hear about at the same time that sub went down, there was this boat that capsized in the Mediterranean with 750 refugees about it. And it moves us, it touches us deep in our heart, but then we do nothing. And it's not necessarily because we don't want to do anything. It's just that there's so much and oftentimes so far away we can't do anything. So Postman makes that point is that our information to action ratio or our action to information ratio keeps going down. We keep hearing about more and more things and they're overwhelmed and we're touched by them and we feel a desire to do something, but we do nothing. So these three points that Comer makes, we have more information than ever before. We feel overwhelmed by all that information and there were, we are used to hearing information, even being touched by it, being moved by it, but then doing nothing. So why do these matter? What do all these things go together? That's where we turn to the final story that we read from Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, where Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So he tells this story. Jesus tells a story about two men. There's a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man builds his house on rock, the foolish on sand, and storms come. The one on the rock, it stands. What happens to the one on the sand? It gets washed away. Now maybe you, if you grew up around church, maybe you learned a little song about that as you were growing up. You know, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand, and he goes tumbling down. But as I said at the beginning, I don't think Jesus is simply making an illustration about ancient building codes. He's not simply telling people, ah, not a good idea to build your house on sand because it's going to get washed away. Because listen, what's the difference as Jesus tells the story between the two people? I'm going to read it again. He says, therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. And then we'll go down to the next one. Who Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. So we have two individuals. Do both of them hear the words of Jesus? What's the difference between them? One puts it into practice and one doesn't. And when he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, now we're in chapter 7, end of the sermon, what words do you think Jesus is talking about? Chapters 5, 6, and 7, the rest of it, right? And so here he is, he said, this is what's going on. So he's offering a warning, he's saying, this is what happens. He says, I've spoken these words, not only do I think you're moved by them, but now Jesus will not tolerate a low action to information ratio. He says, you've heard these things, now you need to do something with them. And so this is why many through history have found these teachings to be hard. Because as we start to study them, and it talks about loving your neighbor and gouging out your eye and all sorts of things, you're like, wait a minute, this is hard stuff. We'll get to the gouging. I don't want anybody gouging out their eye this week, okay? 
But Jesus talks about what it looks like to follow him and how hard it is. And so people through history have often tried to soften up the words of Jesus. To maybe say, well, the Sermon on the Mount, that's just kind of private stuff. That's not public life. Or maybe, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount is really hard. That's for the super disciples. If you want to be a super disciple of Jesus, follow the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of you, yeah, just follow the other stuff best you can. Others have said, well, maybe Jesus didn't actually expect us to follow the Sermon on the Mount. He was just really making the bar super high, making us realize how miserable and how lousy we were, and we could never make it, which would drive us to our knees and to pray. The problem with all of those theories is Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're a wise man. If you don't, you're a fool. Why did people come up with these other theories? Because it's hard stuff. It's hard to do. But what we see as Jesus is doing it, as Jesus is the Messiah, as he's talking about these things, this is what like Scott McKnight, a professor at Northern Seminary, talks about the importance of this. And he says that these teachings that Jesus gives to us can only be lived out in community and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That here he is as the King Jesus giving those things. This isn't salvation by works. And we can't ignore what Jesus is saying. But here's what John Stott, um, scholar, says. He says this way. He says, so Jesus confronts us with himself sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. I'm going to read that again. So Jesus confronts us with himself, sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with a low action information ratio. He's not going to have anything to do with that. It's not enough to just know more. We're expected to hear and do. What Jesus in some sense is asking as he concludes this sermon is the same challenge he gave to his disciples at the beginning is to say, will you follow me? And so that's the question, the posture I want us to take as we enter into this is to say, if Jesus is the new Moses, if he comes and is describing for us life in the kingdom of God and what it looks like to be God's people, will we sit at his feet and listen? Will we sit at his feet and be his students? Are we willing to hear what he says and put it into practice even when it doesn't make sense? Because some of the teaching we will read it, we'll say, that just doesn't make, that, that's not going to work. Jesus isn't concerned with whether or not it will work as far as you're concerned. What Jesus says is what? There's two choices. You can be like the wise man who hears the words and what? Puts them into practice. Or like the foolish man who hears them and what? Doesn't. Or as Scott McKnight says it again, he says, only as demand do we hear this sermon as he meant it to be heard, as the claim of Jesus on our whole being. So Jesus is calling us. So now, 
I'm not suggesting, as we'll go through this, we'll clear. Jesus isn't saying we get saved by these things we do. But what he is saying is saying, if you want to be my follower, I expect you to do the things I tell you to do. I expect you to listen. But what I want us to get to at the end is he says, whoever put, hears these words of mine, of mine and puts them into practice. Jesus isn't simply, and the title of the sermon was The Ethic of Jesus, and sometimes we get focused on these things that he says. But Jesus isn't calling us simply to respond to a way of life. He's not simply saying, here's a good way to live. Isn't it great? Come and join this way of life. What Jesus wants us to respond to is the one who gives it. Jesus is inviting us to respond to him and to declare who he is. So I invite us as we enter into this study, and not even just the Sermon on the Mount, anytime if you pick up your Bible and you begin to read it, or maybe you listen to it on an audio book, or you're listening to a teaching somewhere, to take on the posture of a student, to sit at the feet of Jesus. And even I remember years ago, and I can't remember who taught me, that shared with me this idea of saying, when I go to Scripture, when I'm getting ready to read, to say, and begin with a posture of obedience to say, if God has something to say to me, I'm going to do what he says. Because that's really the question is, what's the point of hearing what God has called us to do if we're not going to do it? Jesus doesn't say, Whoever hears these words of mine and can recite them and teach them to all kinds of people and perfectly explain the nuances of the Greek and Hebrew, they're like a wise man. Instead, what he says, whoever hears these words of mine and what? Puts them into practice. So he's inviting us to come and to sit at his feet as students, to hear his words, to listen, to understand them and process and try and figure out what he means and what he means for us living here in Fruitland Township in the 21st century. Because some of what he taught, we have to translate and bring forward into our time. But then he expects us to not only hear and understand it, he expects us to move it into action. And in the same way as we read our Bibles, even if we're not reading the Sermon on the Mount, we're hearing the words of Jesus, we're hearing the words of God spoken to us, he expects us as we hear those things to respond to hear those words and put them into practice because otherwise, if we don't put them into practice, he's saying we're like a foolish man who builds his house on a sand and when the storms, and I think what Jesus is pointing to ultimately is the final day of judgment. He said, when, if we don't put these words into practice, it just gets washed away. I mean, we can build an elaborate sandcastle with all kinds of ideas of our own and ways to do things and stuff. And we have made some amazing sandcastles. I mean, last time we were down at the beach, there were this group of kids come walking by, and this one kid stops and is like, oh, that is awesome. I mean, he wasn't talking to us. He was just exclaiming. He's like, that's an awesome sandcastle. Next day, pff, nothing. And Jesus is saying the same thing about our lives, that we can do all kinds of stuff, and we can do a lot of things, and we can build our lives and do all kinds of great things and maybe make other people stop and say, that is awesome. But if it's not built on the teachings of Jesus, if we're not doing what Jesus has called us to do, it doesn't matter how awesome it is. It just gets washed away. 
So the haunting question of Jesus that he asks all of us is, will you follow me? Or we could say, will you repent? Will you reorganize? Will you recalibrate? Will you reconfigure all of your life, your mind and your will to follow me? Will you live as my faithful disciple? And so I invite us to all hear that question today. We all have to answer it for ourselves. I can't answer it for you. But I can tell you that when you do answer that question in the affirmative, say, yes, I will follow you, Jesus, that he will walk with you and he will guide you and he will lead you and he will set you on a rock and he will protect you and he gives you life and life eternal and all of those things. So hear the question of Jesus today for all of us. Will you follow him? Amen.